Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network to over 70 community stations around the nation, this is Word for Word, coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I am Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us, entertained us, but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is one of them. This man was born in Melbourne, and while his writing has won him critical acclaim, it's been his courage to explore his traditional Greek heritage as an Australian man that has made him an undeniably fascinating author. His writing is laced with a provocative and controversial overtone that leaves the reader always debating the character's morals and ethics. Whether it's his best-selling novels like the award-winning The Slap and Barracuda, or even the cult success of Dead Europe and Loaded, you never walk away unscathed by the upfront nature of anguish, sexual desire and cultural politics. And compelled to investigate his masculinity in this complex world, it is that very title that he has explored harder and faster than any other author of his generation. His work is that of legends, with so much of his storytelling being translated into cinema and television programs, which has captivated a worldwide audience. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to welcome Christos Chalkas to Word for Word. Where I was really blessed was being an avid reader. I was born an Australian child, but because I grew up in this Greek world, I didn't speak any English. My mum has this story. She says I was about 10 at the time and that I turned around to her and said, Mum, I'm going to be a writer. Christos Cholkas is an award-winning author as well as a playwright, essayist and screenwriter. My name's Christos Cholkas. I'm a writer. That's one of the things I am. No one deserves to be hit, let alone a child. Hugo's problem is not that Harry gave him a slap. Hugo's problem is that you and Gary let him act like an absolute brat. That's enough. I say look at your parents. Hard-working migrants, work two jobs, struggle all your life, buy your kids a house. Yeah, that's purpose. Welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Benjamin. I really, um, I'm sorry I'm hard to get, but I've, I've, I've been waiting to do this interview. I like that you're hard to get. <laughs> that makes this more exclusive, I think. You know what? I've brought all of your books in. I can see, and all library books. I had a friend of mine saying that, you know, oh, well, you've got to get Christos to sign them, but I don't necessarily know if you can sign library books. Um, I think I would probably get charged. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that, defaming the book or defacing the book. I could. <laughs> I, could um, I could face a jail sentence. <laughs> you know, a lot of your work, I find that there's similar themes where there's the underdog, the outsider. There's a lot of depictions of self-loathing and things like that that has happened throughout your life. And these themes sort of resurface in different ways. Was that all very conscious when you were writing? 
Look, I do think there are always obsessions that an individual has, an individual artist has that comes out in the work they do. Mm. And you, I think mine are about masculinity, are about family. And, and shame, when you talk about self-loathing, I think it's it's got to do with uh, heritage and the background that I've got. I think it actually protected me in, in lots of ways because I've got, coming from a really strong family where love was never an issue, you know, and that's not not everyone's experience. I'm really fortunate there. I also had a, you know, my mum was fiercely independent and my dad was a really gentle man and that is a good combination, I think, for a young queer kid. Absolutely. Growing up. But at the same time, you know, they were a strict Greek family at a time when they were migrants to this country. They were quite fearful of my exploring the, uh, the what they call the uh, Australian world. And in as is with a lot of communities, not only Greek, but, uh, you know, migrants from across the globe and also traditional Aussie communities and traditional Aboriginal communities even, the notion of shame is really strong. That, mm. You know, that your first loyalty is family, but the second and sometimes as equally important is to community. So what will the community think? And I think that's that suddenly realising in my late childhood, early teens that I was, you know, for want of a better word, a pusti, a pufta, and realising that that meant that at some point I was going to have to deal with that struggle in the community itself, that made me really conscious of shame and how shame works. And I think because where I was really blessed was being an avid reader from mm. really, really early on, I gravitated to the outsider in the novel in in the story yeah. so in that way i don't know if it was conscious when i first started writing but i had been influenced by the the, the story of the outsider and i think it came in that first writing when you write yourself I've, I, I say this because it's absolutely true when i wrote my first novel loaded i had no idea if i was ever going to do this again and you don't know if you're ever going to do it you know, really? You, you dream. I, I was, and look, you know, I, you, there were there weren't creative writing courses. There were, you know, I just it was a dream that I had, and I'd been writing from really, really young in exercise books, and I had those dreams of being a writer. That's that was really, I, I guess, that was a core dream from childhood. But I didn't grow up in a literary world. I didn't know writers. I didn't know artists. I didn't. I, it just felt like that was an impossible dream. How amazing. We're going to get into a lot more of this. You were born in 1965 and you grew up in Melbourne. What would you say your childhood was like? I think absolutely blessed. And I mean that it was, you know, you could objectively say it was a hard childhood in the sense that I was a working class child of migrant parents. So it's not like we had a lot, but what we had was absolute safety. It was a time where we all lived in close proximity to each other. So I lived in close proximity to my two cousins, Vicky and Bill, who I loved and could see them all the time. We rule, we kids rule the streets. You know, there was school, you know, you walk to school and no one ever thought of, you know, walking your kid to school. I mean, there was... Stranger the, danger edge, like that, there, yeah. There was, it was just it was big, before that. And also, you know, this was in Richmond. My parents worked in factories that were that were literally down the road. So, you know, I, I probably knew three quarters of the street I grew up in. Yeah. That memory of rule, of of the streets is, is what I cherish. Um, just the other day I was driving 
I had my cousin out from Grace Crosslandinos and there was a circus at uh, at the Oval at Burnley Oval and we used to go there every time the circus was in town and again you know no supervision and the carnies were terrific they loved us kids and like they would take us in and they would get us to play with the animals and you know you'd probably be These arrested days, you'd be arrested <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know I I I've, I've got a there's a story I tell about. I mean, I just I want to say this because I remember about it's over ten years ago now. But my 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 partner Wayne and I we were travelling in the Middle East and we were in Amman in Jordan, and we were walking down a street, just in you know in the city there, and I started the sentence. I said, Wayne, have you noticed? And he finished it. It was ex- like we had had it at the same time. He went, Yeah, look at all the kids and. There were little girls playing versions of hopscotch. There were boys playing football. The sound of children was everywhere. And I thought, that's what my childhood was like. And I haven't seen that in Australia for a really long time, Benjamin. How would you describe that era in the late 60s in Richmond, you know, sort of the 60s and 70s, for the Greek culture that you're in? It was so Greek in the sense that, Look to you know the best way to introduce that or to, to to make sense for it for people was so I was born here I was born you know at what is now the QV <laughs> uh, shopping mall in the city the the, uh, the hospital there so you know I was an, I was born an Australian child but because I grew up in this Greek world I didn't speak any English until I went to school and we didn't we didn't do kindergarten back then so I went straight to primary school and I was I'm, I mean this I was completely shocked that suddenly there was this woman at the front of the class speaking in this language that I'd kind of heard on television, but I really didn't know. And so for the first six months of my uh, primary school, I was put in a class with uh, recently uh, recently arrived immigrant kids who were largely from Turkey and Lebanon back then because I didn't know any English. I had to, to do kind of being in this special class to, to learn the language. And I do keep making saying that when critics attack me, I sometimes go, well, that's because English is my second language. But in, in all honesty, I actually think it gave me, um, well, to, to your question, that's what the world I grew up in was like. It was very heavily migrant. And if, um, if you look at the school photograph, Ben, there's, you know, there's only a, a couple, oh, about three or four Anglo kids. The rest of us are from, from largely at that time, the um, um, Turkey and Southern Europe. And so I felt, now at that time, as a little kid, being part of that world was terrific because our houses were full of every uh, Saturday night, Friday night or Saturday night, someone was having a party. And in that, I think, Mediterranean way, kids are part of that. You go out and play in the street and then come back in and someone's got the guitar out and they're playing. The, the women are cooking up at fabulous meals in the, in the kitchen. The, the party's going to late at night. Often, maybe every second week, we would be going down to the National Theatre in Richmond or the Westgarth in Northcote and there would be Greek movies. And again, the same thing. You know, the adults would be watching the film, but often we kids would be sliding down the banisters, playing in Bridge Road. Again, you'd get arrested now if you let your kid play. Be like turning up at your house. Did you leave your child outside? (laughs) Absolutely joyous for that youthful part of my life. I think the great change for me, and I don't know if it was similar for you as well, was the coming of adolescence Mm. and the slow... Was it slow? It wasn't slow. It was actually... I think the realisation... 
I really mean this. I I knew that I loved boys, men from from late primary school. Like I I knew it. Like but I, then, what age did you go through puberty though? I probably started early. See, for me, I didn't go through puberty. This is going to sound odd to you, but I didn't go through puberty till I was eighteen. Wow! Okay. So I was so unaware of boys. I wanted to be friends with boys and girls. And I had no lustful feelings or anything. Very different to me. So, yeah, like the, like what you were saying, it, it's gradual, it's slow, but then it's very quick. So, I think, you know, for you personally, once you got to that age, it all would have changed quite quickly. It did. It did. And uh, I mean, I have a, that's a really, that's a really an observation that I want to think about because I think you're absolutely right. I, I think I must have gone through puberty quite early on. It, the way it was in my imagination was back then if i'm trying to kind of access what what was going through my head it was partly was like going oh well i'm you know i'm greek we you know we get the beard <laughs> you know yeah. we get hairy earlier and i do remember that that suddenly it's like a punch that hormonal rush that comes with with puberty because suddenly the world uh, it's really interesting hearing what you said because it suddenly does change suddenly you you realize, yeah, and you you suddenly your relationship with even your best friend, your best mate, who you a few weeks ago were you, know, you were swapping football cards with and playing marbles and just you know just being kids, suddenly you're aware of feelings that seem dangerous and you're certainly suspicious because all you've gleaned is that these feelings should be directed towards girls. If you've got them, you know, you've kind of, you know, the world of sex has been a mystery. You know, it's there. You've heard things. You've, you've sensed things, but it's, but it, you know, you've been protected from it. But for me, in late primary school, I suddenly entered that, that consciousness. And then in my second year of high school, my parents moved out from Richmond and, you know, a bit of that migrant dream, went out to Box Hill North and uh, went to Blackburn High. And, so I was really in the midst of kind of teenagehood then, and I'd gone at that time, unlike what it is, you know, Box Hill is quite an Asian uh, Australian population it now. It is now, yeah. But back then it was, it, was, it was really white. It was really white. And I just, I remember because halfway through year eight going into the classroom and I was looking around and going, they're all really blonde. And just thinking, am I the only wog here? And it was, <laughs> it was a real shock. Yeah. So, well, you know, so there, I've painted of an idyllic because I think it was an idyllic childhood. But I think whatever, even if we had stayed in Richmond, I think there would have been issues to, that would have brought me to a, a sense of crisis to do with sexuality. Because it, what it did, what sexuality did was remove me from a world that I felt really comfortable in. You know, I'd, I'd already begun to think, I don't know how to be Greek you know, I don't know, because mm. I'm, I'm not like my best mate, you know, because I want to sleep with him, mm. you know, I want to have sex with him. That makes me a pervert. That makes me... It's a huge struggle to go through. What's odd to me is that it's such a young age to cope with complex issues. Well, you can't... T- I mean, you're, you're, you live in this state of... And I hope that this is changing, because I think this is really... I mean, this is uh, part of the experience that is... There's no better word for it. It's terrifying. Is that you feel like you can't speak of it to the people you love most in the world, and you're still a young child. You're a child, and the people you love most in the world are your 
parents, your family, your your best friends, and you go, I can't, if I confess even a part of this, I will be exiled. Yeah, what's going to happen to me? And that's that's a terror that I think is what creates so much of the psychological pain of being queer, mm. you know. And yes, as I said, I hope that that's, that's changing. Starting to diminish a little bit. Where I go, again, I keep coming back to books, I keep coming back to art, I keep coming back to, to films, Ben, is that that's where I was able... I mean, they saved me. I really think that because it was in in reading, in going to the movies, that I thought, oh, okay, you know, there's other opportunity. Exactly, out there. exactly. If you had have just been isolated to your feelings and having no understanding of there being lives and worlds outside of that, you'd probably think, well, where do what? I go from here? Well, I think I think there are the only options then are a complete retreat into. You know, into silence. I mean, that's what the closet is. You know, it's just like kind of, or I don't know what. I mean, self destruction. I mean, if you really have no opportunities to to find an echo of of your reality anywhere, that's that's incredibly difficult. And there's, you know, we're talking about it in terms of sexuality, but I think that sometimes can. I mean, not. I think that's often part of the experience of racism. I don't want to mm. be. A, a, I'm not an expert on racism because I'm not a you know I'm not a person of colour. But I growing up a wog in this country and growing up a wog in that particular time gives me some kind of some relationship to to it. And and and, and as part of that reading, you but they are different ways of being marginalised. They are very know? very different. I'm not, but I'm but I think that that's you know for example I think a, a, a black person growing up in an all white town. There's an element of going, where am I going to, you know, if you don't have books, if you don't have images, if you don't have a sense of that there is a mm. confirmation that I am also of this world, that's a really hard experience. What about this relationship you have with your father? My dad did this really sweet thing because he was really proud that I read, you know, from, from primary school. He was really, because he didn't come from a culture, yeah. you know, he came from a... World War Two and the Civil War. He didn't come from schooling. He didn't have access to education, and, so, and he was, you know, he 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 made a huge decision to come to this country, a uh, family of twelve, you know, to largely to send money back to Greece, working in, in in factories here. But every Thursday, he would stop at a little news agency that was in Bridge Road in Richmond close to where I grew up and he would buy two books with his paycheck and because he couldn't read English I, sometimes it would be Mills and Boom he'd give me sometimes it would be Charles Dickens but he gave me I remember my first Harold Robbins and I was about nine or ten he gave me Henry Miller and I remember struggling with Henry Miller like really struggling and the language is so difficult and the concepts are so sophisticated and I can't say that I understood any of it but I was like I just something in me went I've got to keep trying that there's something about literature that if I'm ever going to crack I'm going to have to do this work so I feel always grateful for my dad doing that now with your parents I mean your parents were quite protective in the sense that you know your dad armed you with literature so even in that way your parents had such a really positive impact and you were lucky to have them what was their relationship like between each other as you were growing up um, so my parents' marriage was arranged, so there was, in a way, I knew that, ha- knowing that, that there wasn't a kind of the great romance. And I think the early years were difficult for mum and dad because it was a struggle. And I think whenever there's economic struggle, that affects the relationship. So there was, apart from 
from that going on, they had different ways of understanding their migration. So for my father, his memories, and I only learned this later, I mean, it's one of the things that, you know, my dad's experiences as a young man were quite horrific because he, he was a, a late teen in a, in a civil war in Greece that in many ways was uglier than what happened in World War Two, And he saw things that no, no person should see. I, he never talked about those things, right? He never talked about mm. those things. And it was only when I went to Greece as an adult that my relatives told me. And I remember coming back here and he was furious at them for having revealed these these experiences and that they are you know they are nothing I have undergone in my life comes close to to what my father had to go through and he was like this is why I migrated because I knew if I had children I never wanted them to to experience this and he loved his country he loved his family But he was deeply suspicious of Greece because of the experience he saw. And there was an image, he didn't know Goya, he didn't know art, but you know there's the famous painting of Goya sat and eating his children? Yeah. And he would always say about Greece, Greece eats its children. And just before he died was, you know, the Greece was again in an economic crisis that happened after the GFC. And I remember him on the hospital bed talking about Greece and saying that again, it eats its children all the time so even though he felt the loss of home and family he was really happy to have to be here i think my mother one but she's the only one who migrated from her family she always wished she was back in greece so i think uh, in terms of my parents relationship that was a real struggle early on you know mum wanted to go back you know dad was really happy here and I think that, so. You're young, and you don't really. Know, you just know that there's, you know, they're screaming at each other, and there's always seem to be screaming about Greece, and you don't quite understand it. I think that changed when we were older, and Dad went back to Greece in the early seventies, and it was the period of a junta. And again, you know, Greece eats his children. You know, mm. he came back, and he decisively said, "There is no way I am going to take my." children back to to that country that's under a military dictatorship and i think mum came to she realized that she as well went, we can't do we can't do that as well and so i think they became you know they made a decision to stay here and stay together and i think in terms of that both a kind of stoicism and a kind of honor about family and Family values. Well, yeah, it's hard because in a way we don't have the language for it anymore because we live in a much more individualistic world. I do too, you know. Uh, But that kind of sense of there are obligations that you have to honour was something that was very paramount for both my father and for my mother. And I think that has had an influence on the way I want to live my life and, and can duck my life so you know i i think i've talked about this with wayne a lot because we're 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 33 years together which is a long time we were we were really young when we when we met and his parents are immigrants as well from holland and they i think have theirs is a different history but they also have elements of that or that bedrock of what honor is and what responsibility is and i think wayne and i both share it so even when things have become really hard we really think it's important to work 
at the things that you want to honour that is best in a relationship. I mean, I'm really, you know, I'm really lucky because I love the man to freaking eternity. You know, he's it's so nice. He saves me. That. But I think there's also that comes from my parents. So they gave me. I, I think they've given me that sense of honour, and they've given me a, a real sense of love and. Yeah, that, you know, I'm, I know I'm lucky. Not everyone gets to have that in families, unfortunately. And what they also gave me was their language. I think it's really... Uh, I resented it as a young child having to go to Greek school, but as a writer there is nothing more splendid than knowing another language. Because even, in, you know, my, my first language is English, really. You know, that's what I write in. But I can... In, in writing, I can sometimes think in Greek, and I can think of what happens if I translate back and forth between these two language, what, languages, what do I do with the English language? Mm. That's, you know, I keep saying, this is one thing that the Anglophonic world that we're part of does not get, how important language is. And, you know, I just think, you know, when I talk to young kids and they say, I want to be an artist or I want to be a writer, I say, then you've got to do a bloody language. Because that will be a skill that you can use in your practice, mm. regardless of what it is, because it will make you think in a different way. A different way of storytelling as and look, well. And look at the English language. You know, one of my favourite books is Lolita Nabokov. You know, he learned English as an, you know, it, that's not as in his language. He, he was Russian, he spoke French, then English. Joseph Conrad. You know, some of the best storytellers. Of, you know, and some of the best English writing in the world. And I think that's... Not accidental that they were because they knew about language because they had to work at understanding and translating the world into different languages. And that's what you do as a writer is you're translating an experience of the world into a language that you as a reader can can understand. I was going to, can I just say actually to that, but it did help when I was young, you know, because they couldn't read my work in English. So (laughs) that's also handy. That was handy, but the loader did get translated into uh, all the books have been translated into greek which and you know dad was a absolute sweetheart i did give him the greek translation of loaded and he uh said oh christo i tried for three or four pages and then went i can't do this you know you know it wasn't a kind of i understood that i was really glad that he lived long enough to read the slap and particularly to read the section called manonius which is about the old greek man because i that was dad was in my head all the time when I was writing I can imagine yeah Um, that's so but yeah that early period I think made me a little I I, I was able to be fearless in the writing because I knew my parents couldn't read it and I'm only saying that because you're young you know when you start writing and I know you know I've had lots of conversations with writer friends and that you know it is a concern especially if you want to do something that is challenging or or really honest or really honest yeah do you want to sit down and have a really honest frank you know (laughs) conversation about sex and love and relationship and the things that you the things that people do you know with your parents exactly no i mean you want to have you know i think you want to get to a point of truth Mm. but it doesn't but you don't necessarily want to reveal every little detail every uh, I, i will i mean Having said that, um, and because I know you know uh, Jill Bilcock, who was the editor on Head On, that was the film that Anna Kokinos adopted from Loaded, and the Greek translation translation hadn't come out, and so the first 
insight my mum had into the book was going to the cinema together to see a screening of Head On. And and it was a really, you know, she, so she's coming blind to this. She's, she's heard a little bit about the book and the film starts and she just won't look at me. She's just staring at the screen. And then the only point that she reacts is, and she just bashes me with her elbow, is a scene where the protagonist, Ari, is shooting up drugs. That's kind of, that's, you know, that's her way of saying not okay with that's this. not okay with that film finishes and she goes to the loos at the nova it was at the nova cinemas in carlton and she is in there for 10 15 it felt like she was in there for hours and i was really terrified i, I mean i'm laughing about it now but i was because i'm so i you she's know she's had an overdose of valley <laughs> exactly it's like she's like oh god you know what the poor th- you know what she's gone through and how is she making sense of it she knows i'm gay but you know, this film is quite revealing of so many aspects. So revealing. Right. Of Anyway, she comes out and she says, let's go and get a drink. And I will, I'm, f- I'm forever grateful to everyone involved in that film because we just ended up at a pub in Carlton and smashed so many whiskeys and got really, really drunk, but got really honest. And not in a, as I said, you know, but it was, it was it was wonderful. It was suddenly something broke in her and she could ask all the questions she wanted to ask. And and I could ask some of the questions that I want, wanted to ask and was nervous of asking. And it was, yeah, so I'm really grateful. Christos, who shocked each other more? Like, did you shock your mum with your stories or did she shock you with hers? <laughs> I think head on was the shock for mum because though she knew these things, she didn't want to imagine. She had an experience of that film that no one else in the world has had, which is the mother watching that that film so your mum was consistently c- questioning yeah is this what i see on screen was my son taking drugs was my son having dangerous promiscuous sex that's terrifying exactly hence the elbow <laughs> i'd be getting more than i'd be getting more than an elbow if that was my mum if i said i mean i've been very honest with my mum about certain things in my life you know, there's some things that I guess you don't feel the need or is not necessary to tell It isn't you. necessary to. Yeah. You know, but then as an artist and a creator and a writer for you, who's had so much of your work translated into film, it's unescapable. Whilst I think a lot of people probably shut the door and don't have honest conversations with their parents. I think there is a period of, you know, this is in the writing, it's in the, in the, in the stories. There is a period where I think it is necessary to, no matter what the relationship is with your family and this isn't only about sexuality right i think there is an element we all do this that you have to forge your own life and you have to kind of you've got to go through that i mean i'm an old existentialist in that sense i really believe that you have to work out what is important to you you know as benjamin norris in the world as christos Cholkis in the world what is it that matters and part of forging that part like finding that path rather is having to have is to separate yourself from family i think it's also having at a point to go i can also try and separate myself from the culture that i thought is the whole world and try and get new experiences try to understand people i've never tried to understand before but really what is it that i am in the world to me is fundamental question that goes beyond any identity it's just fundamental to how we live our life how do i live i mean barracuda of which is a novel that i've always said feels felt like starting 
writing again is actually telling the loaded story in a different way because it is, you know, I've gone back to this young character, but the boy's and the man's struggle in Barracuda is how is it that I can live a good life? What is, a, what is it to be a good man in this world, a good person in, the, in this world? I was really conscious as soon as I started that novel that that was what it's about because I think that's the fundamental question for me. I think navigating your own narrative for me is really important and my mum consistently said to me my whole life, you have to be true to yourself. Focus harder on what it is that you want. I mean, your happiness is your happiness. You know, if you're going to spend your whole life trying to create happiness for your parents or for your friends or for other people, I don't think you're ever going to experience true happiness. Well, that was a really hard lesson for, you know, um, you know, like many of us, you want to be liked. I wanted to be liked. And I think the, the, the lesson I had to learn was that you can't, you can't do that in the world. You can't be uh, something for everyone. You really have to... Be true to yourself. Well, yeah, as you said, be true to yourself. And so the first, for me... You know, part of that was learning how to be true to myself within the context of family. And that's what I meant, you know, that there, there was that necessarily... I, I had to move away uh, physically, um, but also emotionally for a while. Well, I was lucky the connection of love was never lost there, but it was, you know, I had to get, I had to get a sense of who, what, who was Christos Cholkas. And now at this point, I can look back and go, yes, I have... An inheritance that comes from both my mother and my father. I have an inheritance that is cultural as well as the familial and the the emotional. I'm really proud of all that. But I'm also not my mother and my father. And that's why I got a little bit, you know, I just hesitated about telling their stories. Because the truth is they should be tell their stories. Because they're going to tell their stories in a different way. Because they they know their stories more truthfully than I can. Than, than I do. I get that. But at the same time as well, my, uh, my grandfather passed away and he was a great storyteller and I tell his stories now, but that's in honour of him, you know? And I think I love that he lives on still by the art of storytelling, you know? Yeah, and I is... think my storytelling as well comes from him and I love that heritage passes down. You know, you're absolutely right. Actually, you know, I'm sure that my boyfriend goes. I've heard that story about your grandfather before. I don't want to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> Means not of nothing to him. I think, my friend, that's part of being a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's endurance. <laughs> Enduring- exactly. Endurance is actually a really good word. Thinking about a lot about this conversation we've been having because it's endurance, and it makes it sound like it's all struggle, and it's not. It's, it's also absolute pleasure. But there is an endurance that you need to stay committed to someone. Uh-huh. And really, yeah. you need that. And there's an endurance you need to become a good reader and a good writer. And it, the endurance, you know, as a child about, you know, learning to be patient, that you can't have everything at once. I know. I, I'm going to take that word away from, from the conversation we've had. And, and, and you've changed my mind. You're, you're right. We can. You can be We've protect- an honour mm. tell our stories. Because the slap manolius, which is my, the, the central for me story, well, you know, it's, a, it's the spine really to the slap is I owe to my father and to so many peers of his generation and a lot of dead Europe is comes from my father's and my mother's art with story Mm. you know the 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 way they especially my dad talked to me about growing up in a village and I used it I consciously used that storytelling so I get quite emotional when I hear people telling their stories of their because family is important to me 
and when I hear other people unearthing stories from their family and that they feel passionate about telling those stories, I connect to it in a way. But I love storytelling, though. You know, just hearing that, you know, one thing that I think, just listening to you, that I really like is the importance of family to you as well. Mm. And I think there was a sense, maybe it was a, it was a myth we migrant communities told ourselves as a defence against xenophobia and stuff, but it was like family wasn't as important to Australians. And I think that's absolutely untrue. Like, and when I say Australians, I mean Anglo-Australians, right? I just think it takes... The acknowledgement of it is... It's kind of expressed in different ways, but it feels like a really good and positive change or a beginning of a good and positive change in Australian culture that we are becoming more at ease with talking about what family means. Because mm. it was really hard. I, I but I take, I take religion out of it, I take society out of it, and I place it not about being an Australian or anything like that. I think, to me personally, it's luck. Like, for you, you had luck oh, God, in the yeah. fact that you had your mum and your dad yeah. and that they were these amazing people. Yeah. And I think for myself, I have this luck that I had these a mum and a dad and their parents that I had important relationships with. And that's so enriching for who I am as a person. And I think most of our lives we're self-obsessed and we sort of want to explore who we are and know who we are. And that all comes from our family. I, I do not disagree at all. And fortune, fortune, you know, and luck, they're words I would use a lot because I do. And that's not a way of... You know, that's not false humility. That I just think you've got to understand that there are things that come through fortune. You know, I was lucky to have the parents I had. I was lucky that I was published in the 90s at a point where these young women were coming into the publishing industry who were no longer scared of queer writing. Did, was there a time when, not something sexual, but when was your first knowledge that there was gay people? I remember Midnight Cowboy, the John Schlesinger movie, was on television one night. And I, I you know... I can tell you I was in primary school. At what age I was, I'm, I'm not sure. And I am forever grateful that my parents had no concept of censorship, clearly. Uh, They're letting you watch whatever you like. Yeah. Um, and there was the scene where John Voigt, as the hustler, is um, the, the guy's going down on him and then doesn't have the money to pay. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God. You know, I, I just that... That's two men together. That's two men together. How old Just were you when you're watching that? Look again, it may not. It may have been. It would have been late years of primary school, but around that time. But I think you know, there's so many people who relate to that. I remember SBS was a source of information for a lot of generations of people tapping into things that maybe wasn't the right age, you know, to be watching it. But as parents, I guess you can't be too strict with censorship either. I think for there was a sense that, in a way, coming from the worlds of poverty, the worlds of World War II, the worlds of a civil war, there's nothing on television that they thought could... They weren't scared of those kind of images. Mm. They, that because compared to what I think they had seen, particularly what my father had seen, they were, they were not frightening. So, um, so in that, that, to use the word fortunate again, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate mm. that they, they didn't try to, to censor those images. This is later, so this is, I knew there were gay people and I was terrified that I was one of them. But I'm just thinking of those moments where someone, someone you respect does, can lead you into, can just offer your hand as a young mm. person. So the Patrick White book is dedicated to a high school teacher I had, Yaroslav Javier. And we never talked, he was, a, he was one of the, the world's great teachers. We, he, we never talked 
about me being gay because I was still too scared of even articulating it, certainly not to a high school teacher. But he introduced me to the world of European books. He And I can see now that he steered me. He gave me my... He steered me towards people like André Gide and, you know, the books that are central to to my reading life. And It opened your mind, but it also gave you some some role models to have, I guess. Exactly. And that generosity and that kindness of just one individual teacher can change a a life. That's why I think, you know, I just think education, they're so central. But there's also a moment... And for a lot of your listeners, you will have you, you you may not know this band, but there was a terrific film reviewer called Ivan Hutchinson, yeah. who in in Melbourne um, in the in the seventies and eighties, and, and he he's he was a great writer on film, and he also used to have a show on Channel Seven about film, you know, introducing great films, and he had a screening of a film called Making Love that was the first one of the first. Hollywood commercial films that featured gay characters, uh, Michael Otkin. Anyway, I, I went to a screening. I heard about it because I was a film geek mm. from a really early age, and and Ivan Hutchinson was wasn't gay himself, but he introduced the film with the most eloquent defence of sexual liberty. And can you remember what he said? Just that um, this is part of the human experience. You know that the uh, some of the greatest people in my life are. Uh, gay men and lesbians that it is paraphrasing but it was that kind of powerful moment to hear someone you respected and I respected Ivan Hutchinson say that was a huge release so just to your question it made me think of that moment that those things are it's such a rare moment that not a lot of people of our generation would have ever had and so that's why I am in terms of a coming to yeah just a coming to as a as a young person uh, young queer person i'm really grateful for that moment if you could give some advice to yourself as a 12 year old say as you came in as a 12 year old now what advice would you give yourself for <sighs> to keep reading to not believe that you had to make a choice between i really mean this a choice between art and sport that you can do both, because uh, you like your football. Yeah, yeah, but I did. I came of uh, I came of an age where it seemed to be that you either a you know you're either a jock or a poofter. It was like, but, but you know, the Breakfast Club <laughs> you just somehow had to be one or the other. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't be both. I would, I would give that advice to myself. I would, I would say, don't be so hard on yourself. And I would also say, you know, get a job earlier learn independence earlier because that's really important yeah i think that those are those are the main things i would say to myself in all seriousness because of the age i would have i mean i was really you know again fortune uh knowing what i know now would have said there's something called safe sex that you've never had to think about and you should think about it because you know i was i was uh you know i started being sexually active at 15 and i started using drugs not long after and you know you know i hear you know the grace of god really or the saying that as a non-believer let's say just really fortunate because hiv aids was the defining it was, it was a key political experience uh, of of my my life because i came 
survive, you know, of age as a, a young adult queer man at a time when people... It was dangerous to be that. It was dangerous to pe- be that. People who, who were friends, people who I loved, people who were around me were, were getting sick and dying. And so that's probably something, you know, I'm, I'm being serious, but I, I need to be serious about that. That would have been a piece of advice that I would have given my younger self. Because I was taking... You know, the risks... You know, I could have been me. I think that was always something that really... Well, if you're experimenting with drugs and you're being promiscuous, I mean, they're, they're, that's the danger zone. Well, exactly. What, where were you getting your hands on drugs at that age? You know, statute of limitations. I was uh, one of my best friends at school. And look, another thing, you know, talk that I'm thankful to my parents is I couldn't do... I had to keep it to the weekends. I had to keep it to holidays because my parents had a, you know, they had a really strict... They knew what was going on. They knew what was going on. And so I didn't have the freedom to go out in the way some of my Anglo friends did. But it did, that restraint was important because I was hungry for experiences. Because what sort of drugs were you experimenting with? Speed was, um, I mean, you know, dope, you know, marijuana, but... It was speed that was a drug that I that I just loved, and I loved it from the first time I took it. How similar to Ari in Loaded is your life, though? Like, there's there's sections of the book and there's scenes in the film where Ari is injecting speed and going out and exploring Melbourne and being sexual. Uh, is that a direct yeah, look, reenactment I mean, of your life at the time? I mean, I was, yes. Um, I think one of the fears I had when um, we suddenly started getting knowledge of what this, uh, what AIDS was, was that I'd ha- I had been using drugs intravenously as well. So that, you know, that put me in really high risk, category. high risk categories. Um, so I, I was, I was terrified the first time I went for for the test because because of that, because I, I kind of straddled both those experiences but so did you know so did lots of people i mean it was something that people were doing at the time i mean drugs are still prevalent today you know there's hopefully less of it and statistics are saying that younger people are drinking less you know which is also quite amazing i think the healthier you are psychologically the less you i mean i will always you know it's 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 an aging body so i can't do drugs the way i that I if I had drugs a, now, I'd probably have a heart attack, a stroke. <laughs> but the, um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm not going to pretend to be, you know, I there's also pleasures that came from drugs that are invaluable, really, and experiences that I that I will cherish because you 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 can have some astonishing moments, you know, in 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 celebration, but they, you know, I they also for a period became what. Uh, happens with addiction they became a crutch and that was no longer about the pleasure or, or conviality it, it was just it was just a way of going through the day and i knew i had a problem then drug stuff is always so difficult to talk about that's where again the politics of extremes is kind of destroying us a little but i remember the I, I say this often but it's really true i remember the la- the last time i was proud politically of where we were as Australians was at the beginning of the 90s and I was travelling, you know, I'd gone to Greece and then travelling through Europe and ended up in the US for the first time and, you know, at that point we had some of the best drug and HIV policy in the world. You know, we had uh, needle exchange programs. We had really uh, a health system that was not, you know, that wasn't about punishment. That was actually about treating this as a disease, and that let us take the best care we can. 
you forget about that. You forget about how actually socially progressive we were as a nation in those years. And it feels a little, well, more than a little. It's, it's sad to feel that that confidence we had back then has gone, been replaced by fear and anxiety. Well, I think that's the problem with politics these days. It probably has gone downhill a little bit in the ways in which we tackle things because of fear and because we're scared to admit the truth. And when you're scared to admit the truth, you're not actually handling the truth. That's another thing I would tell the really young Christos Cholkas is not to be scared, to not to be as scared, to not that a life lived in fear is not a good life. I think that that would be solid advice. I think at the same time, if you... I don't necessarily see you as someone that's ever been governed by fear because in all of your writing with all of your books, your books are passionate, vibrant, expressive, dangerous stories in some some ways. So I don't really see that fear in you. Oh, of, of course. I mean... I don't know. You can't really go back and change things in a way, you know what I mean? And you don't want to. You know, you, you, you know, every single step is which leads you to this moment that I am sitting across a desk from you. Every single step, you know, that's, um, that's the realisation of time and, 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 and history. And no, <laughs> that fearlessness came from experience and it came from taking the, a kind of leap, a leap of faith, that I had to, uh, I had to pursue the kind of life I wanted, the the writing life I wanted, the individual life I wanted, the sexual life I, I wanted. There is a, a moment that marks that for me too. I, I I used to be quite religious. I didn't grow up very. I mean, Mum, in particular, has a really strong Orthodox faith, but a but married, thankfully, to a real anti-clerical. I think that's what differentiates differentiates us orthodox from the catholics mm. even though the rituals are, can be quite similar mum's faith in god has got nothing to do with respecting priests she she knows priests can be good people but she knows they can also be venal <laughs> and do terrible things because she's seen it happen and i think because the the orthodox clergy are married you know my my great uncle is a priest and you know you, when you hear your uncles and aunts tell you stories of what he got up to it just you don't, you know, you can't feel he's a saint. So I think that's a good thing. And I had that kind of religious belief. And my dad comes from a village where, you know, a lot of dead Europe stories come from dad, including the vampire. So I had this kind of magical, supernatural mm. world that I grew up in. But for a period in high school, in and I think directly in, in order to deal with my emerging sexuality I became a fundamentalist Christian for about a year and a half never totally committed but I just thought if I punish myself hard enough maybe I can get rid of this you know I'll I'll use the word what I thought was a cancer which was my sexuality and I do remember did you put too much pressure on yourself I was putting too much pressure on myself because I think of when I look at your characters even and even when we're talking now you know I mean, it's a sign of the times and it's about being from that generation. But there was so much pressure that you put on yourself to live up to what, you, I guess, your family wanted, but then what you kind of thought you should be. So it's society pressures. All, all of that, I think. And it just, you know, I, I think for a lot of what happens is that you, use, you try and find any any 
valve that will to release some of that pressure and you know religion was one possibility but to what i was talking about it the point where i realized actually i don't believe this anymore is when i started i just thought then i can jump you know if if i'm wrong about god then maybe i'm wrong about everything and the only way i'm going to find out if i'm wrong is to not to allow myself to have as much experience as i can and i think that that leap was absolutely crucial and important and that's where I started to learn a little bit of what it would be to live a life without fear. I don't think that's totally ever going to go away, but that's that's the beginning of it. What do you think makes a good writer? Being a good reader. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think true. I'm being I'm being really serious, I think because there's the I look uh, in terms of narrative fiction you know, if you're a good storyteller, that's that that that's um, makes you a good writer. In terms of all kind of writing, loving language, you know, and you know, loving language and not being lazy about language, you know, thinking seriously about every word you use. But the way you learn that is through through reading. That's that's how you, how you learn. So you know, this is you know, this is you know, just. So you understand that this never goes away as a writer. I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment, Norman Mailer's uh, um, Naked and the Dead, which I, I read first time as a teenager. Reading again, which I and and I've still got I've got this book by the bed with a pen, and if I come across a word that I'm not sure about, I will put it in the book, and then I will look up the dictionary, and I will write it down because I just think that's that's my trade is in language and words and my tools are well you're musculating language. the language you're exactly your ability. exactly exactly it's mm. the, it's the, it's part of the training so i think that makes you a good that's why what i mean that reading makes you a Being, and then there are sorry ben but then you know there are some there's some writing is beyond any way and there's some art you know that you can't capture <laughs> that that is is the, is the word ineffable? You know, the, the sense of the uh, unknowability of God. It's the unknowability of art. The one that always comes to mind is something like Franz Kafka. Yeah. You know? I mean, how that is true genius. We overuse that word. There are not a lot of geniuses of that, that magnitude. But I can't tell you what makes him a great writer except because his imagination, his creativity is beyond feels like beyond human and mm. it's wonderful that it's human but i don't you know i don't know what some what people it is. have a genuine talent and some people it's a it's it's a craft yes. of, you know it comes from experience it keeps from working on it you get better at it i mean you're very critical in lots of ways looking over all of the books that you've written now are you pr- particularly proud of one of them do you go do you still go that book there that's that's what i am doing this for i'm proud of that i think probably this is like Sophie's Choice where I get you to cut off yeah, one of your which, children. Exactly. How can you do it? I think the, the book that I am... Yeah, in that sense, I would have to say Dead Europe because Dead Europe marked uh, a particular phase in my writing where I thought I can, you know, I can do something different, you know. I can, and and it, was a partic- it was a very, very hard book to write. It took me a long time and it came from when I started a, a real existential question of do I... Do I really want to do this? Can I commit to this? And in doing Dead Europe, I realised that, yes, this is going to be my life. So that's part of where the pride is in, in, mm. in that book. And I think it, it also taught me 
that of course I will as I said right at the beginning of this interview there are always obsessions and wounds that we will that each individual writer will will mine mm. for their work and Dead Europe certainly is part of that but it also taught me I can write in different ways do you have a message for the queer community that might be listening to this right now? So there's not anything I could say to the queer community that isn't what I would say to people in general, which is uh, listen. Let, I think it's really important we listen more and to not be fearful to, of debate, to not be fearful of ideas, to not be fearful of the stranger. You know, maybe I've been reading a lot of my Bible, but that's that's one even though I'm not a believer now, that's one message in Christianity that I think is important to resurrect. That the, you know you owe a care and a generosity to, to the stranger. Christos Chalkas, thank you so much for being able to be here on My Word friend, Word. an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.